pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We regularly do that. But Lord, this morning we thank you for your word as it speaks to us. As it does, Lord, we pray that you would find us receptive to what you have said and responsive to what you have said, that we might better reflect the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Since we're going to be going to mostly um, streaming worship services, uh, I've asked the church cabinet and the trustees to invest in some laugh tracks and applause uh, machines for us so that we can have regular feedback along the way during our service. Uh, We'll get to decide then when we get applause and when we get the laughs in the appropriate spots. Because i got to say, you don't always laugh in the appropriate spots, and so I thought we should uh, invest in that. I do again want to encourage you, and by the way, since you're going to be watching a service from home, you can sing and be as raucous as you want during the worship service. You don't have to worry about that anymore. You can shout to the rooftops as long as your neighbors are okay with that, and you can reasonably carry a tune. If you cannot carry a tune, we'll provide buckets for you to do that. Max Lucado wrote a book back in the way back in the 20th century now. The book was entitled In the Grip of Grace. If you've not read that book, I encourage you to pick it up and read through it. Here's just a little excerpt from that book I want to share with you this morning as we think about this idea of forgiveness. Max Lucado writes, Each week, Kevin Tunnell was required to mail a dollar to a family he'd rather forget. They sued him for $1.5 million, but settled for $936 to be paid a dollar at a time. The family expected the payment each Friday, so Tunnel wouldn't forget what happened on the first Friday of 1982. That's the day their daughter was killed. Tunnel was convicted of manslaughter and drunken driving. He was 17, she was 18. Tunnel served a court sentence. He also spent seven years campaigning against drunk driving, six years more than his sentence required. But he kept forgetting to send the dollar. The weekly restitution was to last until the year 2000, 18 years. Tunnel made the check out to the victim, mailed the check to her family, and then the money was deposited in a scholarship fund. The family took him to court four times for failure to comply. After the most recent appearance, Tunnel spent 30 days in jail. He insisted that he's not defying the order, but rather is haunted by the girl's death and tormented by the reminders. He offered the family two boxes of checks covering the payments until the year 2001, one year more than required. They refused. It's not money they seek, but penance. Quoting the mother, Lucato says, We want to receive the check every week on time. He must understand that we are going to pursue this until August of the year 2000. We will go back to court every month if we have to. Few would question the anger of the family, Lucato writes. Only the naive would think it fair to leave the guilty unpunished, but Lucato says, I do have one concern. Is 936 payments enough? Not for Tunnel to send, mind you, but for the family to demand. When they receive the final payment, will they be at peace? Will the family be able to put the matter to rest? Is 18 years worth of restitution sufficient? Will 196 months worth of remorse be adequate? How much is enough? Were you in the family and Tunnel was your target, how many payments would you require? Better stated, how many payments do you require? Lucato writes, no one, I repeat, no one makes it through life free of injury. Someone somewhere has hurt you. 
Like that 18-year-old young lady, you have been a victim. She died because somebody drank too much. Part of you has died because someone spoke too much, demanded too much, or neglected too much. So this morning, we're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions. How does a Christian respond when we are hurt or wounded or wronged? And how does a Christian respond when we're the ones doing the hurting and the wounding? I have been accused in the past of getting all my theology from cartoons. It's not true. I get some of my theology from cartoons. And I loved Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if you were fans of Calvin and Hobbes. I have their complete collection back at our apartment, sitting on a shelf, and every now and then I leaf through it. And I have subscribed to, of course, their um, Twitter and, uh, and Instagram feeds so that I can see the cartoons on a regular basis. Anyway, in The Essential Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson, the cartoon character Calvin, the little boy, says to his tiger friend Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. Maybe you should apologize to her, Hobbes suggests. Calvin ponders this for a moment and replies, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. See, if we had a laugh track, I'd have punched the button right then, and it would have moved her laughter. But no, we have you. Today we're going to hear Jesus' solution about this notion of being wronged and forgiveness and forgiving when we've been wronged. And we're going to go at this in two parts today. The first part comes from Matthew chapter 18. It's just verses 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. The words will be up on the screen and you can follow along on your phone app or wherever. If you're watching online from our website, there's a Bible translation to the right of the picture. You can use that. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. I love this. We have a reunion with our friend from our tour through the Gospel of Mark. You remember our tour through the Gospel of Mark? Please nod your heads and say, "Mm -hmm." Old, impetuous Peter. Braggadocio Peter. Solid one minute, flaky the next minute, Peter. Peter thinks he's going the extra mile here. Peter, who took a step to walk on the water and then floundered with the next step. Peter. Peter here in one of those aspiring to be the teacher's pet moments. Peter, who reminds me so much of, well, me. See, here's the context for Peter's question. The rules of the day, the tradition of the day said that if somebody committed the same sin against you, if somebody wronged you in the same way, you were required to forgive them up to three times. On the fourth time, forget it. Out. This is the original three strikes and you're out law. Right here. So Peter, you think, he thinks he's being extravagant in his, in his offer, right? Not just three times, Jesus, but hey, I'm going to go all the way to seven times. And you and I, we think we are so big-hearted if we give somebody a second chance. They let us down one time, they let us down again, that's it, they're gone. Jesus says this, not so fast, Peter. Not seven times. But in the original language of the Bible, the numbers are sometimes harder to discern. So he either says 77 times or 70 times seven times. 
But here's the thing. Jesus is not just establishing some kind of outer limit because he knows us really well. You and I, we'd get out our calculators and we keep adding up. That's one. That's two. That's three. That's 76. 77, I'm out. But he's not establishing an outer boundary so that we can keep score. He's not encouraging us to count to 77 and say, gotcha. He's saying, listen, there is no limit to the number of times required that we should forgive. And he does this by using this number seven. Numbers have significance in the Bible. The number seven equals perfection in the Bible. So 70 times seven is perfection, 70 times times perfection. Or 77 is perfection times 10. See, in forgiveness, in this notion of forgiveness, Jesus calls us to this place of perfection. Now, I know you hear the word perfection. I hear the word perfection. I go, oh, I can't go there. I know there are times when I think I'm perfect, but we all know that I'm not. Let me in on you. Let you in on a little secret. There are times when you think you're perfect, but we all know that you're not. 70 times 7 times 7. If a doggy was doing this in doggy math, that would be 3,430 times. Why does Jesus point to this genuinely extravagant notion of forgiveness? You've got to admit, he's like gone over the top here. He's like gone Jesus crazy here with this forgiveness thing. He's like gone way past what we would think of would be reasonable numbers of forgiveness to this place of outrageousness. 77 times. Are you kidding me? Do you know how I've been wronged? Do you know what those people have said about me and done to me? Are you kidding me, Jesus? So why does he do this? He does this to point to us, point out to us what forgiveness really looks like and the larger context of forgiveness. Whatever wrongs we have had done to us, whatever wrongs we impose on other people, all of those wrongs, as huge as they might be, they occur in a larger context of forgiveness. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew 18 again, starting in verse 23. Jesus tells a story. I love it when he tells these stories, these parables. It gives me hope that since I'm as much of a remedial disciple as these guys were, that I might get what Jesus is trying to say. So here's this parable. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. We'll talk about these numbers in a minute. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Verse 26, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called that servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This compelling parable is only in the Gospel of Matthew. It's about relative debt and the notion of forgiveness and perspective about forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever owed what seemed to you to be an insurmountable amount of money. In 2015, I made a math mistake on our taxes. The IRS sent me a love note asking for $15,000. Now, for some of you, maybe that's no big deal. When we got that letter, panic, disaster, despair. $15,000? I could have got $15 together, but $15,000? So in this parable, what Jesus does is he exaggerates for effect. And so I want to give you a little feel for these relative amounts of money here. That amount of money that the first servant owned, that 10,000 bags of gold in the original, 10,000 talents of gold, in today's money, $1 billion. That's real money. Unless, of course, you're in Congress. We're going to get that laugh track thing going. In verse 28, the, 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 the other servant that owes these a hundred silver coins, that's a hundred denarii, that's a, a, that each coin was equal to about one day's worth of wages. So in today's money, a hundred days of worth wages, let's say 15 bucks an hour for an eight-hour day, day, that's $12,000. So the first servant owes a billion, the second servant owes 12000 And in this parable, here's the context. In this parable, God is the one to whom all of us owe the billion. How can that be? It can be because of a three-letter word that you and I hate, but is consistently true in the scriptures. Three-letter word, sin. And by virtue of our sin, we cannot repay the debt. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care what your resume looks like. I do not care what you accumulate in this life. There is not enough of an accumulation to pay the debt of sin, the sin that separates you and me from God. But just like the king in the story, God has mercy, and if we trust Jesus, God forgives the sin. He forgives the debt. He wipes the slate clean. He takes the mortgage and he burns it. He takes the car payment account and when you log in, you see that the balance is zero. He takes the calculator, adds a bunch of numbers and then hits the clear key and it all goes to nothing. He takes the letter from the Eternal Revenue Service and says, I'll handle that. The grace of God frees us from debt. And that's what Jesus is trying to get impetuous Peter and you and me to see in this story, in this parable. This guy owed a debt he could not pay. In fact, there's an old hymn. He owed a debt he could not pay. Christ paid a debt he did not owe. I don't remember the rest of the words to it. Tiffany, would you sing it for us, please? All right, never mind. 
But God frees us from his incredible debt, this this overwhelming, pervasive debt. But what does the forgiven one do in the story that Jesus tells here? Does he become this lighthearted, gracious, freedom-loving creature who goes around just blessing everybody he knows? No, the first thing he does is he encounters somebody that owes him something, this way lesser amount. This, compared to the billion dollars, this minuscule amount of money, and he grabs him, and he chokes him, and he says, pay me back. And the other servant says, I can't do it. And so the first servant has the second servant tossed into jail until the debt can be repaid. The servant who's been forgiven so extravagantly refuses to forgive He, the first guy, was owed pocket change, relatively speaking, compared to what he had owed the king. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this juncture. I think I think what you might be thinking at this juncture. There were a lot of things in that sentence. Anyway, I know what I thought when I went through this parable the first time. I thought, yeah, you you don't know how I've been hurt. And you're sitting there this morning, or at home this morning, and you're saying, Pastor, how you don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know how wounding it was. And I don't know the particulars, but trust me, in this pastoral endeavor, I heard, have heard a lot of really, really, really ugly stories about woundedness. People who have been wounded. People who have done the wounding. <laughs> And Jesus says that our hurts, as ugly as they are, are pocket change compared to the way each of us wounds God with our sin. And in verses 30 and 31, the master knows how we respond, and he says, look, I have shown you mercy on a grand and lavish scale. Shouldn't Shouldn't you do the same? So, leads us to a couple of questions, I think. The first one that I think is important to ask ourselves on this fall sunny morning, this fall pandemic morning, here's the first question. Have we been forgiven by God through Christ? Do we see our sin? Do we see our debt? Do we we realize that if we lived a thousand lifetimes, we'd only get further behind? Being religious will not pay our debt. Being in a church building will not pay our debt. Being in a church building doesn't make us a Christian any more than being in Casa Ramos makes us a steak quesadilla. Only Christ can pay our debt. Have we let him? Have you let him? Historic churches are a beautiful thing. They anchor themselves in a community. And in this case, for growing on two centuries... And they become these consistent lighthouses where the gospel is proclaimed. And that is a powerful and wonderful thing. But here's another thing I know about historic churches. Really any church. People can hang out in those places for a very long time. And because there's participation in the worship activities, which I grant these days look a little different than they used to, but nonetheless, 
or they can be really involved, sign up for every committee, do every chore, master every uh, 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 thing that needs to be mastered, and still not have had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ to be relieved of this debt that we cannot pay. So that's the first question. Have we let Jesus pay our debt? Here's the second question. Have we forgiven those who have hurt us the way God in Christ has forgiven us? Have we forgiven those who hurt us in the way God in Christ forgives us? Now, let me pause right here. I know that there are real levels of horrendousness out there. I had a pastor friend in Colorado who called me one day just distraught. His granddaughter had been uh, sexually abused. She was like four by a daycare attendant. He was heartbroken, furious, all those things that you can imagine you would be if somebody close to you had been wounded in that way. And we sat down, we talked about this a lot. And you know, we eventually got back to the, the place where we get back to as Christians, we, this word forgiveness, it haunts us sometimes. And he says, Howard, Pastor Howard, I don't think I can forgive this guy ever. In fact, right now I want to kill him. I said, well, Bill, don't kill him. What are we going to do? And I'd love to tell you this morning that that story has some kind of happy ending on the other side. It really, it really doesn't because the family has been haunted by that episode from the day it happened. So I know this is hard. I'm not pretending it's easy. But let me share with you another story this morning. Corey Tenboom. I don't know if you've heard that name or not. She was... Uh, she lived in um, Holland, and she and her family, during the course early days of World War II, they made it a point to hide Jewish refugees so that the Nazis wouldn't come and take them away and kill them. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. This is a little episode from that. So after the defeat of Hitler's Nazi regime in World War II, Holocaust survivor and Christian Corrie Ten Boom went back to Germany to declare the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. One evening, after giving her message, she was approached by a man who identified himself as a former Nazi guard from the concentration camp at Ravensbrück, where she had been held and where her sister Betsy had died. When Corey saw the man's face, she recognized him as one of the most cruel and vindictive guards from the camp. He reached out his hand and said to her, A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, will you forgive me? And about that encounter, here's what Corey wrote in her book. I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours. 
as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Parenthetically, we're going to pray about that in a minute. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Remember that. The will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. As she reached out her hand to the former guard, Corey says that something incredible took place. She continues, The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. I had never known love so intensely as I did then. But even then, even then, I realized it was not my love. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who have been shown mercy must show mercy. Those who have been forgiven must forgive. Because ultimately, folks, the church is supposed to be a community of the forgiven, not a community of people keeping score about wrongdoings. God has forgiven us. We must forgive others. Will we accept the forgiveness of God? Will we offer forgiveness to others? Two notes about this. A word to those of us who may be waiting on forgiveness, who have attempted to forgive and may be waiting on a response. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 12 says this in verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Ultimately, we are not responsible for how other people respond to us. If we seek forgiveness, or if we extend forgiveness. We're not responsible for them. And here's a truism that has been real in my own life, and I trust it would be a truism real in your own life, is that when I harbor unforgiveness, the other person walks around completely oblivious to the fact that I am harboring unforgiveness. It has zero effect on them. The only person it's affecting is me. It is weighing me down. It's destroying my spirit. It's getting in the the way of me and my relationship with the loving, gracious God through Christ. And when I forgive somebody, I release that thing from me. So if you want an entirely selfish motive for doing this, there it is. And here's a word. To those of us who think we can just muster up forgiveness, Corrie Tenboom got at this in her, that little excerpt from her book. Jesus says this in John 15, verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. When we extend a hand of forgiveness, a word of forgiveness, when we seek forgiveness, the Holy Spirit in us empowers us to do those things that God has called us to do. So, with those notes in mind, a guy named Rick Love, I'm not making that name up, a guy named Rick Love wrote the book, wrote a book, Peace Catalysts, Resolving Conflicts in Our Families, Organizations, and Communities. He says this, and I think these are practical tools we can hold on to this morning. He says, forgiveness involves four promises. Promise number one, 
I will no longer dwell on this incident. Promise number two, I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. Promise number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Promise number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. As far as it depends on us, we should live at peace with everybody. That can only happen in the context of our grand awareness of the graciousness, the abundant graciousness of God who has said, give me that billion dollar debt, I'll take care of it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for this word uh, about forgiveness from uh, your word. I I know personally that this is an area that I struggle with on a regular basis. I suspect I'm not alone in that regard. We know that Peter had trouble with it, and I suspect everybody who has followed you since that time has had trouble with this at one point or another. There may be folks in this room or folks listening at home who have that trouble as well. So, Lord, today, make us ever mindful of the debt that you paid on our behalf through your son, Jesus. And in light of the payment of that debt that you made, call us to be the agents of forgiveness that Jesus has called us to be in this passage. We pray in his name. Amen.